passage, uh, and I would be curious to know if any of you have ever really noticed this passage before uh, in here, or ever thought about it, what it means, or thought about maybe what that implies to our lives, Uh, because it's kind of an interesting passage where Paul is talking about, in, in many ways, he's talking about the privileges of being a Christian, because a lot of times we think of the hardships of being a Christian. And and that's fairly common. Uh, I know you know when you read discipleship texts or uh, when I've read certain texts as far as what it means to be a Christian, a lot of times what's focused on is the idea of being crucified with Christ, of uh, being a servant, uh, all these different things. And, and the idea of servitude is in this also. But uh, really just the idea that there's more to it than just the hardships 
Uh, it's more to being a Christian than just the things that we think about as far as hardship is concerned and, and think about as far as what it means to take up your cross or what it means to take up your cross daily or what it means to serve or what it means to whatever. So he, this is one of those passages where really Paul is, is beginning to talk about some of the other side of the coin of being a Christian. Uh, the other side beyond the service side, the other side beyond the suffering side, uh, and all those are valid. I'm not saying that they're not. They are. But there is there is more to it. Now, Paul for sure knew about that. If you read different passages about him, and he talks about where he came from, and he talks about some of the things that he'd been through. I mean, he talks about shipwrecks. The guy had been in shipwrecks for his faith because he's traveling to get somewhere uh, for the gospel. Uh, he'd been beaten with rods. Do you know what being beaten with rods is? Now, you think about just somebody hitting you with a rod. That's not what being beaten with rods is. Being beaten with rods, they'd beat people with rods. They would uh, have them laid down, and their feet would be up in the air, and they would beat the bottom of their feet with rods and break their feet with the rods. Okay, so he'd been beaten with rods. He'd been flogged. Uh, I think you probably know what flogging is with a whip. Sometimes they put little metal pieces in the end of the whip and they would tear your skin away from your back. Uh, that happened to him. Uh, he had been stoned and left for dead. So he understood suffering and and those were all marks on his body that I'm sure he carried uh, as he went, went along. I mean, beyond just the moment. Uh, if you think about being beaten with rods, if your feet are broken, uh, you carry that with you. Because the mode of transportation back then? Walking. Yeah. So uh, he had to walk. And I don't know how your feet heal in that kind of a circumstance. I mean, the, the human body is amazing in the way it heals, but not everything always heals in place. Uh, we have surgeons that kind of oversee that and people that uh, have learned, we've learned how to fix things that they didn't really know how to fix back then. So he probably felt those wounds. He probably felt that beating uh, many years after it happened. Uh, being stoned to death, uh, you're being hit by rocks, bones are being broken. All these things are happening, concussions, whatever. Uh, things you carry with you after the fact, uh, that he's carrying that with him, being scourged, uh, infection. You think of you know, your back being ripped open in, in really an environment that wasn't very sanitary at all, very dirty, and uh, the infection that must have happened in his body after that and whatever he carried from that. So uh, you, you can think about him as being someone who he went through it. You can think about him as someone who had faced hardship, someone that had suffered. And literally, he was someone who had suffered. And probably someone who continued to suffer after the fact because of all the lasting effects of the ways that he had faced suffering in his life. So here he was. And yet, he also understood that there was there's more to being a Christian than just suffering. And, and all you have to do is look at Jesus. You look at the life of Jesus and you see that. You see that there was joy. You see that there were, there were moments where of elation. There were moments of victory. Moments where life was being shared. Moments where you know uh, people were responding to him. You, you think about the big crowds that would come and everyone would be healed. Or, or even something as personal as the woman who came to him and she washed his feet with her tears and her hair and, and anointed his feet with expensive perfume. And how that was like a really personal moment, a really like intimate moment between two people. It happened in front of a bunch of Pharisees. But you understand what I'm saying. It was, it was something that was shared from her heart to him. And, and that was something that he experienced. That there were the times that he washed his, the time he washed his disciples' feet, and there was something shared between them. Then uh, there was the Last Supper that he shared with his disciples. There was something shared. Then there was all these times. There were all these times that Jesus raising the dead. All these things would happen. I mean, the times of joy. 
Now, he's at a wedding in Cana, turning water into wine, times of joy. And so he faced all those times. Of course, there were the times suffering. And, and what he faced there. And so his life was marked by more than just one thing. It wasn't just suffering, but it also wasn't just joy. It wasn't just hard times, but it also wasn't just easy times. It, it wasn't just you know really bad and, and awful things happening, but it wasn't always the greatest and most magnificent things happening either. It was just life. And, and that is the model. That's the idea that we have through Jesus that we're just going to live this life and this life's going to have in it what it has. And, and for some of us, that's going to be different than for somebody else. Maybe we, we see more suffering in our life than somebody else does or we see more joy than somebody else does. If we were born in a different time frame, those things would have been something different for us than they are now. If we were born in a different place, things would be different than they are now. So we have been blessed. We have been provided for. And whatever that means and whatever that's going to mean in the future, it does. But it's the life that we've been given. And it's the life that lays for us. So Paul, he's writing to the Corinthian church. And in his writing, he's talking to them about the privileges of being a Christian. And what he does here is in this passage, he goes beyond just the minimum. It's like, what's the privileges of being a Christian? Well, there are certain things that he mentions here that I think are important, but he over he, you want to say he overstates it, but he doesn't overstate it. He just states it. Like, I want to say that he overstates something here, but there's nothing overstated. It's just stated plainly. And he doesn't hold anything back. He doesn't just say, well, this is going to be the minimum. It's kind of interesting that when you start talking to Christians about different things, uh, you talk, talk Christians about provision, or you talk Christians about blessing, or you talk to Christians about what it means to be blessed, or what it means for God to pour a blessing on us as people. A lot of times, we're going to limit what God's going to do based on whatever our sensibilities are of that. When, uh, when June and I were considering getting married, her mother comes from the old school. What's the old school? I don't know. It's just old. And she comes from the old school when it comes to church. And, and so she was trying to talk June out of marrying me. I don't blame her. All right. I, if, I, if I had to, you know, if I was facing the same situation, I'd try to talk her out of it too. And so she tried to talk her out of getting married to me. And the main thing she was trying to get at was the whole ministry side of it. She's like, do you really want to do this? And so she started describing the situation like, you know, like when you have people come over to the house, you got to hide your good china, you know, because they'll judge you for that. Or you got to hide your good silverware. If you got some nice stuff, you got to hide that. Or you can't wear the clothes you want to wear because people will judge that. And there is some measure of truth to that. There is. And we ran into that when we would travel, that you, you can't always have the best of anything. You can't look the best of anything. You can't be at the forefront of fashion of anything. The car that I drove because I was traveling as a missionary and I was raising support, the car that I drove had to be a hand-me-down. And all of those things were just things that people expected. And there were things that people looked for, and if they didn't find those things, they would judge them. Now, I'm not saying anybody here is like that. I'm just saying that's what we experienced as we were traveling from church to church. This is the way it was. And, and so I will say, honestly to you, we've never hidden any china or silverware or anything in our house. We have people at our house every weekend. This has not been an issue for us. But we've also never pastored a church that we didn't start. We've never pastored a church that uh, was around before we were born. We've never pastored a church of people that we didn't know. And so we've never had to face that. And we've never had to, to run across that. But what that's pointing out, what I'm trying to point out by this, isn't so much as, well, that's bad and wrong or whatever. I don't really care about that. What I'm trying to point out is that there seems to be some sensibility among God's people. That we really, it's good to be blessed, but not too much. And I don't know if you understand what I just said. It's good for God to bless His people, but 
That seems a little extravagant. Well, how extravagant are streets of gold? I mean, how extravagant is that? How extravagant is a crystal sea? How extravagant is what's described in the book of Revelation as to where God lives? And, and the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that he creates. How extravagant is that? I mean, just for a second, think about that. I mean, what's a street? What do you do on a street? You travel, you walk on it, the bottom of your feet. Or in our case, it's vehicles or, or whatever you want to say. And the street takes a beating, doesn't it? I mean, potholes, we, we're pothole heaven here, right? And, and the streets take a beating because the trucks are going whatever. But even streets that don't have traffic out of they still get walked over. They still get dirty, right? They still, mud gets all over them. Salt gets all over them. Whatever else is on the ground gets all over them. People drop their gum on them. I mean, they have those little dirty spots all over them that you got to scrape up. I mean, that's what happens where you talk about a street. Well, to take a street, like it, you know, I'm just, that's what the Bible t- says. Take a street. We're going to make the street out of gold. What's the sensibility of that? The sensibility of that is God is the owner of everything. He owns everything. And if he wants to make a street out of gold, well, he can do that. That's nothing to him. And the idea behind that, and really I I think the reason why you have that descriptor, is for us to begin to really understand God is not limited by us. He's not limited by the things that limit us. He's not limited by the things that we find to be precious or not precious or to be valuable or not valuable or the stuff in this world. So he picks the the most precious of metals, right? And the descriptor we have of the streets in, in, in the New Jerusalem are he picks the most precious metal known to man and says, all right, we're going to just pave the streets with that. The people are going to walk on it. You think about their day, animals walked on it, right? And animals defecated on the street. That's just what it was. They're just made out of dirt. And he's like, well, God's city is going to be made out of gold. And the idea behind that was to begin to shift our thinking from whatever it is that we live under. Whatever that is, that small-minded, that small expectation thing that we live under and begin to shift that into a bigger perspective. A perspective where even the street, the street, the dirtiest place in town is made of gold. Because he can. Because he can. And so I think what's important about that for us and what I believe Paul is doing in this passage, he's beginning to open their hearts, beginning to open their minds to something bigger. Because he's immediately addressing an issue going on where they're they're turning into factions. The people of the Corinthian church, they're turning into factions. People say, well, I, I follow Paul. All right. Yeah, well, I follow Apollos. He's a better speaker than Paul. Which, from all the sources we have, Apollos was a better speaker than Paul. So I, I follow Apollos. Well, oh yeah, well, I follow Cephas. I follow Peter. Because he's better than both of them. And, and there's a faction going on in that where the church is being divided. But there's no division. There's no division between Paul and Apollos and Peter. There's no division. And yet they're creating a division with that because it's small-minded. It's small-minded. It's a party spirit that's going on. And if you figure out anything lately, a party spirit adhering, strictly adhering to one party or another party, you know what gets done if you do that? Nothing! Nothing gets done. Nothing's going to get done. 
Because a party spirit divides people to the point they can't work together and they can't get anything done. And so what Paul is saying to him is like, you got to be bigger than that. And he's literally telling him, he's like, do not degrade yourself by calling yourself after a man. Don't do it. Do not degrade yourself by doing that. Because it's bigger than that. It's all bigger than that. But that's exactly what they were doing. It was common among the Jewish people of the day to to identify with a person, whoever their teacher or their rabbi was, and to say, well, I'm a follower of this person. And that was true among the Greeks also, that they would have certain teachers that they would follow after. And they would identify with that teacher. And Paul said, you've got to be bigger than that. Yeah, I know the culture does that. Yeah, I know these people do that. Those people do that. I know. He's like, but you got to be bigger than that. Don't degrade yourself to that point. And you see Paul doing that in his letters when he's kind of making fun of the people that are trying to be holier than thou. Because he runs into a bunch of people that in the churches that are, are rising up and they're like, they're, they're, they're saying, okay, well, if you want to become a Christian, you got to become Jewish first. And, and they're claiming moral superiority, religious superiority by saying that. It's like, well, we're just upholding the highest of standards. And Paul just makes fun of them. He's like, oh, you think you're a Pharisee? Oh, I'm a Pharisee. And then he starts listing off all of his qualifications to be the best Pharisee on the face of the earth, the Phariseeist of the Pharisees. And, and how he identifies with Gamaliel. That's his teacher. And everybody knows Gamaliel. And so he identifies that. So I'm a follower of Gamaliel. He's my teacher. He was my teacher from the very beginning. But he's making fun of it. He's saying, you people have lost sight of anything that really matters. You're just making divisions between you and others within the church instead of drawing together the way that we're supposed to. I'm a follower of Paul and follower of Peter. Yeah, well, forget that. Peter's going about the same work that Paul's going about. He's going about the same work that Apollos is going about. And they're all doing the same stuff, and they're all bringing everything to the same place. So to begin to identify and degrade yourself to identify one party over another is to put yourself in creating division among yourselves. It's like, don't do it. You will degrade the body of Christ by doing that. You'll degrade yourself by doing that. And there's no reason. And here's what he has to say. And man, I, I hope I can communicate this. Here's what he says. You don't need to degrade yourself because everything belongs to you. you got to think bigger. Everything belongs to you. Everything belongs to you. And the idea behind that is that everything belongs to Jesus. And Jesus belongs to God. So, we are united to Jesus and everything belongs to Him. And so what Paul is saying to them is everything belongs to you. Don't degrade yourself. Don't stoop down to the lowest place but understand that through your unity with Jesus Everything belongs to you. So what does that really mean? Well, Jesus' service, all that he's done, is our perfect freedom. That's our freedom. That we have been set free. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is a liberty. So his service and who he is and all that he's done, that's our perfect freedom. Our identity with him says and proclaims that everything belongs. And, and I want you to think of it this way. Everything belongs to me, not me. Just you say that. Because I'm united with Christ. And so he names off some stuff. He names off stuff. He says people. People. So, so in other words, Jesus is the big picture. So all those people saying, well, Paul. Well, Paul belongs to everybody. Why? Because Paul belongs to Jesus. 
Well, what about the followers of Apollos? Well, Apollos belongs to everybody because, well, Apollos belongs to Jesus. Well, what about Peter? Same thing. Peter belongs to everybody because he belongs to Jesus. And we all belong to Jesus. We're all united with him. And so you might as well just say, well, I'm a follower of Paul and Apollos and Peter and, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus. Oh, that's the big picture. It's not that it's this person or it's this man or it's this, this one thing, but we're all a part of the same thing. And understanding that is getting a bigger hold and a bigger picture on the world that we live in. Instead of dividing up and instead of creating factions and camps, to just understand that we all belong to Jesus. We're all united to Him. And so everything, everything belongs to us. So people. Well, that's the people thing. What about the world? Well, that's the world thing. Why? The world belongs to Jesus. You know, it says in the Psalms, it says, I'll make your enemies a footstool unto you. And so everybody, everything that is the world, everything that is whatever rebellious thing that we are in the world has been placed under the feet of Jesus. It all belongs to him. And that means it all belongs to us, if you can hear it. And what I want you to hear from this is, is I want you to begin to allow that to seep into your heart and seep into your mind. Because I don't know if you can receive this tonight or not, but if you can take hold of that, you can begin to see yourself differently. You can begin to see your place in the world differently. You can begin to see your influence in the world differently. You begin to have a different expectation of what's going on in your life. A different expectation of what's happening today and tomorrow and the next day. I mean, he, he names off something here. He says, he says that everything belongs to you. Life and death belong to you. Well, I was thinking about death. And we, we think about death in certain ways. But what if death really isn't a step into the unknown? What if death is really a step... Not into darkness, but in ultimate light. What if we begin to see death as, as not just some unknown thing or some darkness thing or something where we fall asleep or whatever it is you want to think about death as, but what if death is the step into ultimate light? What if death is not the ceasing of activity? Because that's what we've been told, right? You know, you hook somebody up to a heart monitor... The little thing's blipping. When the thing flatlines, it doesn't blip anymore. Your heart has ceased to operate. So we look at death like it's the ceasing of activity. But what if death, instead of the ceasing of activity, is really the opening of and the beginning of a more noble activity? Because it's more than, and this is what owning it to me means, it's more than it's just, well, everything stops. It's more than, well, everything just goes dark. What if we could really see things the way that Jesus sees things? What if we could begin to understand things the way that he's presented them, actually presented them to us to understand? And then we look at death, and death is just so much more. It's ultimate light. It's ultimate understanding. What, what if that's really what death is? Not darkness at all, but ultimate light. What if it really is the, the beginning of a more noble activity in our life? Not a ceasing of activity at all, but something really a lot better than what we've been doing so far. And if we could begin to see that, and I'm just picking one of the things he mentions, death. But we begin to see death that way. How much more freedom is there? How much more joy is there? How much more peace is there in death if that's the way we see it? I've had everybody in my family has died that's older than me. I'm the oldest living person left. And most of those people knew Jesus. And the issue really never was for me well, what's their eternal home? I knew where they were going. You know, the issue becomes, well, I'm going to miss them. 
I'm going to miss being around them. I'm going to miss hearing them. I'm going to miss seeing them. I'm going to miss talking to them. That became the issue, right? Uh, and some of us, and I'm just saying within my context, but that became the issue in my context. It wasn't so much like, wow, you know, I wonder if they know God. Well, they do know God. But I wonder if I could be a little more excited about death if the focus of death kind of turned away from me and into the opportunity that they have now. That ultimate light thing where they just know so much more than they did a minute ago. And they know so many more people. And they have so many more opportunities than they did just a minute ago. That it's like they won the lottery. And everything is in their hand. What if I could see it like that? Maybe uh, if I could see it like that this is the, the, the beginning of something greater that they're going to do. That as many great things as they did on this life, but right then they made a, they turned a corner and they're about to do something even greater in that moment. And this is their opportunity to do that. Now, how weird is this? Just for a second. That I could see that for a second and actually be happy for them. Right? Yeah. Just for a second. You know, to, to really just say, oh, I can be happy for that person. And, and I guess if I could step out of myself just a little bit, being sad for me, I could be happy for them. And I think and if we're honest about it, you know, um, we are sad for me, right? We're sad for us. But if we could really just step out of it and look at it for what it is, I think that would pass a lot more quickly than being sad for them. Right? So I hope that kind of makes sense because that's just one thing. Now apply that to the idea of life. Apply that to the whole idea that everything belongs, life belongs to me. That I have this life that belongs to me to live now. And the opportunity that that represents and the opportunity that is before me. And the great things that God has. Whatever that might look like or whatever that might be. And ultimately, He's the definer. He defines what that means. He puts the meaning on that. But it's all there. It's all there. And it's not just, I can't just look at tomorrow and just be, oh, no, another day. But what awaits us in this life if everything belongs to me? Because I belong to Christ. What awaits me tomorrow? What awaits me the next day? What awaits me next week or next month or next year? He also talks about he talks about life and death, but he talks about the present. And there's two things here that, that really struck me in this passage. The idea of the present and the idea of the future. He's like, the, the present and the future belong to you. That's what Paul literally says here. The present and the future. And, and I think about the present, it's like, well, what are we going through right now? Okay, somebody look at Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28. All right, does that make sense to you if the present belongs to you? Do you, do you follow what I'm asking? All things, God works all things together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. All right, and I butchered that, but that's basically what it says. So, do you understand the present belongs to you? Because God is working things. What things? All things. What are all things? Well, whatever's not no thing, right? I mean, that's all things. So he's working all things together for good for you. When? Right now. But it's actually living in that. 
It's actually understanding that the present belongs to me. That the present is mine. I'm not a victim of the present. I'm not a victim of the future. I'm not a victim of any of those things. I'm not a victim of anything. It belongs to me. And so, what's happening in my life right now? Well, there's some you know, good things happening in my life. Well, God's working those together for good for my life. Well, if there's some things that I'm struggling with right now in my life, well, God's working those together for good in my life. Why? Because today, right now, belongs to me. And God is looking out for me, and God is bringing those things to pass, and He's bringing those things together, and He's putting those things together for good in my life. That is the manifestation of, of the present belonging to you, is that God is bringing whatever it is you're going through right now, and He's pulling those things together for good for you, for Him, and for the kingdom's sake. That's what He's doing. Look at 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4. And I need a volunteer. Uh, I need a just somebody read verse 5 and verse 15. 5 and then verse 15. 2 Corinthians 4. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Okay. For it is all for your sake, so that as great extent to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. For whose sake? Ours. Like you read something like that, and it's easy to skip over what he's really saying there. But it's for your sake. It's for my sake. And he says what the, the fruit of it looks like is that there's other people going to know Jesus. It says what the fruit of it is is there's other people going to hear the gospel. But for whose sake is it? Well, it's for your sake. It's for my sake. And I know we don't think of it that way, and we skip over that part, and we skip over when he says stuff like this, and yet this is a key ingredient to understanding our place in the kingdom. It's a key ingredient to understanding who we are in the kingdom, who we are in the presence of Christ. It's like these things are done. They are done for the sake of you, me. So the future comes around, and the future doesn't need to be seen as dark, even though you don't know what's going to happen. It should be seen as light, because it's a place of opportunity. The future is the place of opportunity, about all the good stuff you haven't done yet, about all the amazing things that haven't happened yet in your life. That's what the future is. All the opportunities for God to work things together for good for your life and for the lives of the people around you, they haven't happened yet. Why? Because they take place in the future. Well, the future is yours. It belongs to you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of stuff that belongs to you. Don't be afraid of a time and a place that belongs to you. So I'm going to go over a few statements I've made. And you think about these statements. See if they make sense to you. I'm going to ask you if they make sense. You belong to Christ. If we belong to Him, everything belongs to us. Do you understand that? Or not? Okay. Because that's a key component to this. Christ belongs to God. That is the order of things. That is the order of things that Paul lays out in these verses. We belong to Christ. And if we belong to Him, everything belongs to us. Christ belongs to God. This is the order of things. What Jesus is to you, what Jesus is to you, settles what everything else is to you. 
What Jesus is to you settles what everything else is to you. Does that make sense? Or at least the words, do they make sense? Okay. Here's another statement. Our relation to Jesus determines our relation to the universe. Our relation to Jesus determines our relation to the universe. And I want to say that this is not mere rhetoric that Paul is, is speaking here. This is truth. This is an empty rhetoric that Paul is speaking here. And Paul is carrying this idea really, really far. Our issue with this is to not go as far as he carries it. Because he's carrying it pretty far out there. And the issue of the church then is not carrying it as far as he does. Now, by nothing I'm saying here, and I hope I started with this well enough, I'm not saying that suffering isn't a part of our life. Didn't I mention that? Okay. Service is a part of our life. Did I mention that? Yeah. Okay, those things are a part of who we are. But this is also a part of who we are. And if we're not going to be afraid of suffering, and we're not going to be afraid of service, Let's not be afraid of this. Let's not be afraid of understanding that our relationship with Jesus means something in the universe that we live in. Because it does. Our relationship with Jesus means something, means something in the universe. It does. And the real question is, what does it mean? And I believe Paul is beginning to answer that question in these verses. And this just isn't me tonight kind of making this up or anything. I mean, this is centuries of commentary on what these verses mean. This is, this is something that the church has grabbed hold of and believed for centuries. Millennia? That they began to relate their life and their relation to Jesus as determining the relation to the universe. They got it. At least some of them did. And they began to live that out. They allowed that Jesus in them settled what everything else was going to be to them. They allowed that. We need to allow for that. I think we've been living scared way too long. I think the church has been hiding way too long. I think the church has been afraid of what people think way too long. And I think we need to really just begin living the lives that God has given us to live. And let Him define that. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to live in fear. You know, the Bible talks about not living in fear, and yet we make provision in, for fear in our lives. Stop. I'm afraid of the future. Don't be. I'm afraid of whatever it is going to be. Don't be. Because those are the things that stop us from doing the great things that God's called us to. Those are the things that stop us from walking on the water. Those are the things that stop us from seeing the miracles and the signs and the wonders. Those are the things that stop us from going where God tells us to go when He tells us to go. Those are the things that stop us 
from speaking and, 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 and prophesying and doing the things He tells us to do in the places that He sends us and to the people that He sends us to. Those are the things that hinder the miraculous, beautiful stuff that He wants to do through our lives. It's that fear that will stop us. It's that lack of understanding of who we are. It's that settling mentality that keeps us from living in the place that God has called us to. We'd rather fight over stuff that doesn't matter than agree on everything that does. It's time we just start agreeing with Jesus. We start agreeing with Paul. We start agreeing with the church as it's existed through the centuries and it continues to exist. You say, yeah, everything belongs to me because I belong to Jesus and Jesus belongs to God. That the order of things. I want to take a few moments and see if God might apply that to our hearts tonight. And I, I don't know how that takes place. I just pray it does. I just pray it does. You know, half the, the stuff that I've done, probably more than, a lot more than half the stuff I've done, that has meant anything in the in the world. It's me being where I shouldn't have been, saying what I shouldn't have been saying. But I just really believe I have every right and every privilege and every purpose in being there. We just got to get a hold of it. Stop living scared and stop living small. Father, thank you that Jesus is everything. And everything he's done, that's our ultimate freedom. To just live. And and we identify ourselves in him. We are connected to him. We are united with him. And I thank you that uh, all authority has been given him. I thank you that everything is his. And because we're united with him, I thank you that through him and by him, everything is mine and ours. So I pray as we continue to identify with him, that will allow that to identify our place in the universe. As we continue to identify with Him, I pray, God, that that, that will answer our question in, in everything else that we face. That Jesus becomes the defining factor. That our relationship with Him actually means something in the world that we live in. It actually means something in the universe that we're a part of. It actually means something among the people that we see. And so I pray we'll start living in that. That we'll see that life and death and the present and the future, they belong to us because they belong to you. And so I pray that you would help us to get a bigger perspective, a bigger vision, a bigger expectation, that we'd be able to see things bigger because we see things in you. So Jesus, I, I just want to be as close, as close, as close, live as close as I can in you. And I pray that I start living free. And I can start living in courage. I can start living in greater expectation. 
I could start living in more light. I could start living in more understanding. I could start living in more faith. I could start living in more joy. I could start living in more peace. I could start living in more power. Yeah. You do all these things. All these things. So many things. For me. And I just want to say thanks. I pray that in ultimate appreciation, I'd start living in it the way you intended me to. I pray from among us you'd raise us up for bigger stuff, bigger things, bigger things, and bigger places for all your big purposes. We give you thanks tonight. Give you thanks for all the work that you've done and all the work that you're doing. I pray we jump on board. Change our hearts, our minds. Change our vision tonight. Change our vision tonight. I'm going to ask it in Jesus' name. Speak by saying amen. 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 God bless you tonight. Thank you for coming. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. No, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool. Mm-hmm. You know? He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community, like the community that. Yeah, so there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. Yeah.